Well, hello and welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological, philosophical implications and new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name's Jeff and I will be your guide as we explore Hugh's topics of navigating and mine of the origin of the moon. But before we get into the discussion, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, Reasons to Believe, so that you can be notified of our new weekly videos. Learn more at reasons.org or by following us on social media at rtb underscore official. Well, Hugh, it's good to have you here today. I know you've got a discovery talking about navigation and how where you living affects that. So why don't you go ahead and, sure. knock, go ahead and kick us off here today? Well, this is published in the British Journal of Nature. And uh, several authors were involved, and it's based on a, a huge survey. They surveyed 400,000 people in 38 countries. And the survey was basically examining their navigation cap capabilities. And it was a mixture of people living in cities and people living in rural areas. And you know, the first thing they notice is that people living in rural areas have a much better sense and capability of navigation than people living in cities. But they also discovered it made a difference what kind of rural setting they were in and what kind of city the city people were living in. So was it a surprise to find that rural settings tended to be better navigators? I mean, I could see where you could make that argument either way. Well, they did uh, take out the effect, as I said, well, you know, people living in rural settings, they're probably less likely to use uh, smartphones okay, and navigation right. devices. Uh, but they tried to, uh, you know, compensate for that. Right. So that's why they, you know, looked at 400,000 people. Right. With a, with a database that big, uh, they can take out a lot of these uh, variables. Okay. So, uh, and what was particularly interesting is they discovered that, uh, you know, people in Chicago, for example, have a much lower capacity for navigation than people in Prague. Okay. Uh, and Prague is a lot like Boston. You ever been to Boston? The streets do not crisscross. They go every which way. <laughs> right. Uh, Prague and Boston were basically designed uh, not for ease of people moving throughout the city, but for defense. Okay. So they purposely made the streets really curvy. And it's like, you know, they were going every which direction. Uh, whereas in Chicago, which is a lot like where we live here in the Los Angeles basins, uh, the streets are, uh, you know, you've got vertical streets, horizontal streets. as a checkerboard right. uh, kind of design. And what they noticed, they, they determined what was called an entropy measure of the city and an entropy measure of the rural setting. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you're in a rural setting where there's a mix of forests and pastures, mountains, streams, lakes, uh, different relief, different vegetation, they referred to that as a high-entropy rural setting as opposed to places just one flat, gigantic cornfield. Right, okay. Uh, so they noticed that the higher the entropy measure the better the navigation capabilities of the individual that lived there. And so, for example, in city settings, uh, they notice that if the streets are not checkerboard, people do better. But something else that they found interesting, uh, the more rural-like the city's setting, in other words, if the city had uh, parks, and not just parks, they found particularly helpful uh, would be forests and wild ravines or hills, you know, instead of making the city flat, mm -hmm. which a lot of people do because it's easy to put buildings up, leave some hills and ravines in place. 
leave the force in place, and that uh, creates a little more entropy. Uh, but it wasn't just the entropy. They were noticing the more natural the setting, the better the navigation capabilities of the people were. Hmm. Uh, That's interesting because it makes sense to me that, you know, if, if you don't have well-defined grids, you're forced to pay attention to other landmarks, which the more you pay attention to something, you just, you're just going to build a better mental picture. So, you know, you're out in the rural. It's like, okay, there are the two trees. You walk by the pond. I mean, there's this it's – a, it's a string of things you have to remember. Well, I remember my grandparents making those kinds of comments for – Instead of telling me which streets to go to, <laughs> they'd say, well, you're going to see uh, a big pine tree. Right. You know, look for that. And so they would purposely use natural markers mm-hmm. as a way to navigate, whereas what's typical with younger people today, they, they say, no, 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 uh, you, you go up the street, turn a corner here. Right. So, or you look for a gas station. Right. <laughs> so, well, but I, I just found it interesting that, you know, to, the, the more, the less periodic and patterned something is, the more you have to work. And so that's going to increase your navigation abilities. But if I get to what you're saying, that there's also a uh, distinction of having natural land markers or more, or, or uh, is it natural or is it natural human made or is it something other than that? Yeah. They said you get the best navigation skills uh, where you're dealing with wild environments okay. that are not altered by humans. Okay. In other words, uh, you know, leave the original forest intact mm-hmm. with all of its hills and ravines and streams cutting through it. Right. Rather than what's typical in a lot of cities where they just kind of level a place, make it perfectly flat, then they plant trees. Okay. And so your typical park uh, where they just take a flat piece of land, put some grass and trees in it, it's not the same hmm. as if you have a natural wild environment. And they made the point, well, with a natural wild setting, you're going to have more entropy. It's not going to be perfectly flat, and you're not going to have large swaths of grass with no trees and trees around it, kind of how we design our parks. And they also made the point in this paper that it's not just the navigation skills that correlate uh, with how natural your setting is and how entropic Mm -hmm. the setting is. Your mental health also correlates. Hmm. So they made the point that people living in large cities uh, where the streets are laid out at, uh, you know, perfectly perpendicular and parallel lines uh, that, and where there's very few parks and trees or natural ravines or hills, that the mental health uh, in that community is not anywhere near as good as it would be people living in a rural setting uh, where there's a lot of nature around. Did they give any, did any of their research delve into why that was? Because I have some ideas as to why that might be. I'm just curious if they had anything that they tried to explain They didn't really comment that. on it. The reason that this caught my attention is like, well, this seems like a design argument. In mm-hmm. other words, God created this planet Earth, and he filled it with all kinds of life. You know, Psalm 104 uh, implies that God packed our planet with as much life as possible, as diverse as possible. Uh, He takes credit for the mountains, Mm -hmm. the hills, the streams, the lakes. Uh, But recognizing that what we're seeing in this research study is that it's implying uh, that our planet is optimally designed not just to give us good navigation skills, but good mental health, Mm -hmm. uh, good ability to socially interact with one another. Mm -hmm. And I would also add, although this wasn't discussed in the paper, uh, good capacity to interact with the life that shares the planet with us. 
uh, you know, well, that's, uh, yeah, that yeah. was not mentioned in the paper. <laughs> right. But I notice when I'm going out for my uh, morning run, running into some wild animals uh, definitely seems to improve my mental health for the day. Oh, yeah. No, I, I love <laughs> seeing animals. I, it's... Uh, it's one of the games we play when we're traveling, you know, and it's a joke because we don't often get the milkshake. But you know, the first person to spot wildlife and squirrels and stuff don't count. You know, like a deer, moose, elk, those sorts of things. Well, get a milkshake, a, you know, just because it's it's fun to see. So. Well, a few mornings ago, I ran into uh, a bobcat, and I hadn't seen right, a bobcat well. in a while. That was kind of fun. <laughs> so, well, it's it's just kind of a an interesting scenario because I, I notice. There's a lot of, okay, as we get technologically advanced, you know, the one that immediately pops to mind is Star Wars, you know, that you've got this huge city that everybody starts living in, is that's kind of the epitome of we're advanced, we can do things. And this seems to indicate that tends towards worse mental health. And so there's this dilemma or a contradiction or a, a difference between what's idealized as, oh, this is where you go as you get more advanced to what may actually help us take care of ourselves So mentally. you're suggesting that transforming our planet Earth into one gigantic city might not be a good idea. Well, I wouldn't like that. I tend to like more rural settings. I tend to like smaller settings just because it gives you a way to get away and be a little bit more, a little quieter. But you know, we, we've built lots of big cities and kind of there's a, you know, a mark of which is the biggest city, that's the best city type thing. And that seems a little counter to what they're finding in this, that uh, you know, having more rural settings is better for your mental health. Well, again, they make a big deal about the term entropy. And I think a better way for lay people reading this is variety. Mm -hmm. Is that when you live in a, a big metropolitan city, there isn't as much variety okay. as what you get in a rural setting. Uh, and so, you know, the more that we humans try to lower the entropy level in the environment, uh, the more we have problems navigating, the more we have problems engaging one another mm -hmm. socially, and uh, the more mental health issues we have. So, so, so there's a very real benefit to Central Park and places like that, where you kind of keep the natural terrain and let let nature be as it was, and kind of and incorporate that into the city, if you will. Well, I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and they got this huge downtown park called Stanley Park. Part of it is manicured, but most of it they left in its original mm -hmm. wild condition. So you go into the middle of the park. There's a natural swamp there. They didn't bother to drain it. Okay, they left it there. Uh, you got virgin forests there, so you get to see these big trees, mm -hmm. and uh, the wildlife is there. Uh, and they made minimal trails through it. There are trails through it, but they said, we're not going to make these big, wide paths. Right. We're going to try to keep it as natural as possible. And it's adjacent to a very high-density urban setting. Okay. But it means that people living in that high urban setting, low entropy, if you like, because it's, it's all skyscrapers and the streets are, you know, parallel and perpendicular one well, another. I found it remarkable in Vancouver how similar even all the architecture looks. It's, oh, yeah. it's not very diverse in terms of the how, how the different, all the high rises kind of are this glass type structure, if you right. will. So. But if you live in the downtown core, it's a relatively short walk to get to Stanley Park. Nice. <laughs> Once you're in the park, you can get into a completely wild setting. And the park is over a square uh, mile, and so it's a big park. Mm -hmm. So you can actually get away from the tens of thousands of people there, engage wildlife, that kind of thing. And that's how this paper ends. It says, we need to look at this survey and realize there's a better way to design our cities. Uh, not all the streets should be 
you know, parallel and perpendicular to one another. Mm-hmm. It's good to have some curvy streets in there. It's good to have, and they really made the point, we need to think carefully about city parks. Uh, over-manicured parks don't do right. as well as having, say, a natural forest setting. In fact, they've done studies where they have like a daycare center or an elementary school uh, that's adjacent to a wild forest setting mm-hmm. and just let the kids play there for an hour a day. Right. The kids actually academically perform better than students are in the classroom. So they said, give me a one-hour break. Go outside. We're not going to supervise <laughs> you. Just go into the forest. Right. I actually wrote a blog on this. You'll see it at reasons.org how children are allowed to play unsupervised in a natural forest uh, for an hour, do better than students that use that hour for study. And, well, it doesn't surprise me at all. You know, what? one of the things that I find a challenge of these sorts of studies is I don't doubt their correctness. You know, the, um, the more natural your environment looks, the better. Uh, you run into kind of an economic issue in that I've noticed you know, and this is a, you know, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head, but a lot of the wealthier subdivisions tend to follow that. The roads are curvy, not quite so straight, uh, tend to follow the lay of they the land nice a little parks, bit more, yeah. nice parks. But if you're going to put in a lot of housing and make it affordable, straight lines, square block, or, you know, rectangular areas that you, you can, it just tends to be more compact. That's more efficient, if you will. So you can get more affordable housing, but it seems to cost more money to make it look more natural, if you will. It does cost more money, uh, but you know, reading the paper, I'm just saying, you know, there's a rationale here for giving people uh, time off. Mm-hmm. We call them right. vacations, uh, but instead of just staying home in your little city, get out into nature. Right. I mean, that's something my wife and I make a point when we take a vacation. We try to go to the wildest place we can possibly afford. Mm-hmm. And to go there, and uh, we just notice it's very restorative, yeah. physically, spiritually, intellectually. That was not addressed in the paper, but it's like, hey, if you do live in a big, low entropy city, mm-hmm. uh, get out of it once in a while. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you don't have to convince me of that. That's, okay. that's the same right. reason I go take vacations is to kind of get away and do something new. And right. I mean. This world is spectacular when you go look at what God's put into it, well, so I would agree with I that. I made a note in this paper, Mars versus Earth. If you go to the surface of Mars or the surface of the moon, you're basically in a low-entropy surface environment. That's a solid point, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you've got craters and... There's nothing growing there. Right. There's no lakes, no rivers. Pretty much all the same color. It's Looks either all the white same. on Mar- or white on the moon or red on Mars. And, you know, we're thinking seriously about having uh, human habitations on the moon, for right. example. Yeah. It's like maybe they need to take into account what this paper is talking about. Is that it's going to be a challenge to maintain the mental health of people that live on the moon for a period of time, just because it's so different than the Earth. Right. Uh, and just recognize God made our planet incredibly beautiful, incredibly diverse. He oftenly designed it uh, for our enjoyment, our mental health, and evidently for our navigation capabilities. Yeah. That's good. I, I just can't help but think it's going to be really hard to have, make a natural-looking park out on the moon or Mars, though. It's just going to be oh, a big I, challenge. Maybe we shouldn't send people there after all. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Any other final comments? No, that's it. Thank all right. You. Well, thanks, you. I appreciate that. You know, before we get to our next segment, I wanted to share with you about our newest book, Testable Faith, which offers you the opportunity to experience the passion of our ministry with a specialized look into some of our best books. 
You can obtain a copy of this book with a donation of any amount by visiting reasons.org slash donate. This book will be available online from now till the end of December 2022, so act quickly to bring home this very special Reasons to Believe anthology. Well, you know, you're alluding to the importance of natural environments and being out on the moon. Uh, you know, I, I I find the moon very fascinating to look at. I still remember my parents would get out, uh, you know, there'd be a lunar eclipse somewhere in the middle of the night, and they'd wake us up, and we'd go out and watch it for a while. It's a pretty spectacular environment. I don't think it's nearly as good as the Earth. But one of the things, as, as you've written much, uh, many articles about, is that making the moon is quite a challenge, or figuring out how the moon was made was quite a challenge, right. because it is the largest moon in the solar system when you compare it to its host planet. I think Jupiter's got some moons that are larger than Earth, or larger than the Earth's moon, but Jupiter's so much more massive, so compared to the size... Earth's moon is really pretty spectacular. Yeah, it's more than a 50 uh, difference. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like it's even close in that Not measure, even so. close. I think Jupiter's got one where the moon measures uh, 53 times uh, less massive relative to the planet than our moon does relative to the Earth. Yeah. You so. know, and so, I mean, like I said, I think even Jupiter's largest moons are on the same scale as our moon. And so the fact that Jupiter is uh, so, much more so much more massive than yeah. the Earth makes it a real difference. But I do remember about 15, 20 years ago, there was kind of a breakthrough in recognizing that, uh, you know, of the different moon scenarios, you know, you had this uh, kind of four, and I'm, I'm going to draw a blank on a couple of them, but one of them was, you know, it just kind of collected an object uh, that was passing through, kind of a passing asteroid, or that they co-formed together, so the Earth and the moon formed together. Or the, the one that I thought was fascinating was that uh, perhaps the Earth was spinning so fast it just flung off the moon <laughs> off of its surface. Uh, but and but the, the fourth scenario in there was that... <clears throat> the earth had formed and then it was hit by some object that flung a bunch of material out to form the moon. And it turns out that about 20 years ago, simulations were starting to show that was actually a viable mechanism for getting a moon as large as the Earth's moon. And the other three definitely were not. Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, there's just a whole slew of concerns with all of them. But so here you've got this very viable scenario. And I remember one interesting aspect of this giant impact hypothesis was that it was a relatively difficult challenge to get scenarios where you'd get something like the moon. If you, the object that was hitting the earth was too small, it didn't make a moon. If it was too big, it, it did something other than the earth-moon system. If it was too direct of a collision, it just absorbed into the earth. If yeah, it was the too, velocity had to be fine-tuned. Exactly. The attack angle had to be fine-tuned. Uh, the the size of the body had to be fine-tuned. I think you're going to be telling us the composition is an issue as well. Well, no, actually what I found interesting is that, you know, so you've got all of these, uh, or you've got this giant impact hypothesis that says, all right, we can make something that has the separation and the, the size and the scale, something that makes it look like that. But there's one problem or one longstanding problem with these giant impact hypotheses is that, so you've got the Earth, which are you know, the proto-Earth, and then you've got this object, which everybody refers to as Theia, which is the thing that collides with the Earth, and then it, it collides with the right angle, right momentum, all that sort of stuff, to throw off a bunch of material that then can coalesce and form the moon. You can make something that is the size of the Earth, the size of the moon, with all the, the dynamics. But in those scenarios, the composition of the Earth 
or sorry, the composition of the moon is almost always determined or dominantly ter- determined by the composition of the impactor. Mm-hmm. And when we go out and make measurements, the moon rocks that we compare to the earth rocks, they have a very similar composition. And so even though the moon, this giant impactor, uh, the giant impact hypothesis explains the size and the dynamics, it doesn't explain the composition. And so people have been wrestling with scenarios of how do we explain the composition. And the the particular article I've been reading, it was in the Astrophysical Journal Letters published not too long ago, was recognizing that uh, in earlier simulations, occasionally what would happen is you'd have the collision and it would just throw off a large chunk of material. So instead of throwing off a bunch of debris that coalesced and formed the moon, Mm -hmm. it would throw off a chunk of material. And those were largely, those simulations were largely dismissed as not realistic for a number of reasons. You know, one, it was like the, the simulations weren't, didn't have the resolution to say, okay, this is clearly what's going on. Uh, many times that chunk that came off didn't have the proper composition. Um, you know, it, was, it seemed like it was fine-tuned to be able to make that happen. And, and it really, it, was, it seemed like an artifact of the low resolution of the simulations. So there was a group that uh, investigated saying, all right, what happens if we just up the resolution of the simulations dramatically? And instead of using, you know, maybe 100,000 or 10,000 to 100,000, I guess 100,000 to a million um, particles in the simulation, they increased that by a couple orders of magnitude, went up to, uh, you know, 10 to the, instead of 10 to the 6th, go up to 10 to the 8th. Okay. So now what that does is that the size of each particle, something on the order of 14 kilometers, which is a lot smaller, but um, you just have a whole lot more, you got 100 times better resolution in that. And in the previous scenarios, the stuff that would come off, you know, if you're using 10 to the 6 particles, there's just <clears throat> great distances between things. Well, in these new simulations, the objects that make up, or the, the simulated objects that make up the moon have 10 to the 5, 10 to the 6 particles in them. So not only can you have a much better angular or spatial resolution, but there's just so many more particles out there. You can now begin to ask the question, was this really an actual uh, large piece or was it just simply a whole bunch of debris that was thrown off? You couldn't really tell the difference. Well, now there's you know a million particles in the moon object itself, and so now you can actually tell what is the composition. Is this really a solid piece or not? And so they were able to perform these simulations and show that, oh, well, and another, another problem is that very often these large chunks ended up passing through the Roche lobe, which is the region where the Earth's gravitational field will effectively rip it apart. And so even if it does form, it doesn't stick around. Yeah, the Earth winds up accumulating it. Exactly. Well, what they found in these high-resolution simulations is that these large chunks of material are actually a very uh, stable feature of the simulations. And so you can actually form the moon by an immediate collision instead of having it be a collision where there's a bunch of debris that coalesces you can form the moon directly from a large chunk of material coming out from the earth well now you i mean this starts to answer some of these problems because you're throwing off a large hunk of the earth well that's just going to make things a lot more similar to start with and they've also just done some investigations that 
you know, even just starting from the scratch of let's just throw off a chunk of the earth and then debris accumulates around it, you tend to do about the same in terms of the composition difference as the earlier simulations where you end up with this, uh, the, the object that you form looks very moon-like, but the measurements that we know from reality is that the, or the moon looks very earth-like. Well, this, uh, just without even taking any other considerations into effect, all of these things look at least as good as the previous simulations did. But when you start taking into account that perhaps what makes Earth unique is the top layers, and so you're throwing off something that Earth-like. Uh, maybe the moon has some differentiation as well, and so the stuff that it gets thrown in, gets mixed in, looks more Earth-like. And so, so they these new simulations where you immediately form the moon instead of having it coalesce from a bunch of debris uh, has very plausible scenarios that allow it to get up to something that very, looks very Earth-like in its composition. And it opens up the range of parameters where you can get something that looks like the moon. And so it, what, it, what I found interesting in this discussion was it was very difficult to form the Earth-Moon system in the first place. When they did, it was this very tight set of parameters that could make it work. But what we found is that, lo and behold, studying, you know, this, this adds to the dynamics of the parameters in some sense. So there's, there's a, a wider range of parameters that still end up producing uh, a moon. You know, so this thing, they found that even if you throw off a piece and it goes through the Roche lobe, uh, it will disintegrate some of it, but that actually casts it out into a further orbit that takes it out of the, the, arrow, or the region where the Earth's gravitation is going to rip it apart. But... These earlier simulations, highly tuned, seemed like now there's more opportunities out there, but as we begin to want to match more and more features of the moon, we find that it's actually harder and harder to make it all work. So, uh, you know, we've gone from a scenario where we had these four different models that really didn't seem to work at all. Now we've got a model, you know, the giant impact hypothesis, which works to get some of the basic dynamics seemed really fine-tuned the more work we did it seemed there's a lot more options for how to make it work but now as we're investigating the details it seems like that's putting more and more constraints back on what it takes to make it work so you've got to have not not so much the impact parameters may not to be need to be as tuned but in order to make it work you've got to have earth be differentiated in a certain way and the moon needs to be differentiated in a certain way and where you collect the debris as it's going through the roche lobe and getting torn off how that gets drawn onto the moon and onto the earth there's all these other parameters that seem to be fine-tuned so as not, well there's not just the fact that you need to do a better computer simulation we're getting new data on the earth and the moon and so we can put that data into the simulations. Uh, for example, one question I had about this is a couple of papers got published a few months ago saying, when we look at the crust of the moon and the crust of the earth, the composition is highly similar. Mm -hmm. But we do see a different oxygen isotope ratio. So they said it's not totally similar. The oxygen isotope ratio is different. Mm -hmm. And then there was another paper saying, well, yeah, you got a crust similarity, but if you go into the mantle of the moon and the mantle of the earth, there we do see a differentiation. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's not entirely compositionally similar. Right. Uh, there's these distinctions. So I was wondering in, in this research if they had actually incorporated that new data 
into their simulations. I don't think these simulations have enough resolution to do this. I mean, for example, on the moon, the entire moon is made up of a million particles. You know, okay. that, that's far better than what we've been doing, but very pretty minimal to so do. So they're the not really of... taking into the account the fact that the composition of the crust is going to be distinct from the mantle and the core? Well, I, I just don't think we have the capabilities to run simulations reliably to do that. But, you know, your, your point is very well taken that to get things working in the first place was a great challenge. Eventually we found, okay, hey, this scenario actually works. It gets the basic features right. Now let's move to the next step. Not only do we need to get the basic features, which is size of the Earth, size of the moon, angular momentum in the system works. Now we can look at the composition. And as we look at the composition, we see, oh, there's a lot more that goes into that. Our simulations need to be higher resolution in order to see what's going on to resolve that. And as we do that, we see, okay, yeah, we still see a tuneness about what has to happen, but we can actually explain more of the data that's out there. And, and at least with this scenario, or in, in the Earth-Moon, or the Moon formation scenario, we've got a whole lot more data than we're capable of simulating. And so what I, what I find exciting about this is that this isn't like, okay, we've got the answer, everything's all settled. But as we incorporate more advanced simulations, we run into scenarios that we weren't aware of before. And we incorporate better data and, and more comprehensive data. And when you do that, now you're starting, you know, again, if you just had the simulations, well, the more advanced our simulations got, the more options there were for making a body that was earth size, moon size with the right angular momentum. And so that seems to relax the fine tuning. But now you've got the opportunity to say, all right, we've got more data we can put into it. And it seems like every time we put more data into it, again, the range of what actually works to produce the data becomes more and more restrictive. And again, it's, it's you know, you've made this comment before that the fine tuning doesn't just show up in places. It seems to be pervasive. And so where we've kind of squeezed it out, even as we investigate more, it just shows up in the details that we weren't aware of well, and know, able to Jeff, talk about before. When I looked at this paper, it's like, this is deja vu. Because <laughs> uh, you know, I wrote an article, and it's in this book, Design to the Core, how in 2013, Nature devoted a special issue to moon-forming models. Right. Six papers were published. And uh, the motivation for all this new research was, there's way too much fine-tuning here. Mm -hmm. We need to redo the models and see if we can get a greater parameter space so we don't have all of this ridiculous fine-tuned designs right. to explain the formation of the moon. Well, they redid all the models. They improved the simulations, but they also incorporated new data that mm -hmm. they didn't have before. And the bottom line is when they published the results, they said, we got more fine-tuning, not less fine-tuning. And I remember Tim Elliott, one of the researchers, uh, commenting in Nature saying, this is really causing us philosophical disquiet. And what he meant by that, this is really isn't fitting a naturalistic explanation. And right. what's been happening, that was 2013. Mm -hmm. uh, then I they, remember reading that group yeah, of papers. Yeah, right. And then uh, something I put in this book, Designed to the Core, is that we now know we need a coupled magnetosphere. The moon's magnetosphere must couple with the Earth's mm -hmm. magnetosphere or Earth loses all of its water and all of its atmosphere. Well, the fine-tuning you need to make that work so we don't lose our water and our atmosphere causes exponentially greater philosophical disquiet. And looking at this paper, hey, this is going to generate even more philosophical disquiet because right. now we've got uh, better computer simulations. 
But if we throw in our new data, uh, it means that we're going to be seeing more fine-tuning, not right. less. It's the biblical principle. <laughs> the more we learn about nature, the more evidence we uncover for God's supernatural handiwork. And maybe it should give us a lot more appreciation for this moon that orbits the Earth. It really is, you know, and I, and I just I thought it was interesting because they, you know, they were talking about these direct or immediate formation scenarios, and they said, you know, there's low resolution, made problems, lack of iron and proto-Earth material, overly fine-tuned requirements for the impact parameters was one of the reasons they were dismissed. And so now they've got down here that over a small but appreciable range of, of impact angles and speeds, especially for pl spinning planets, uh, they can make these things. And so adding resolution to the simulations opened up the parameter space where you can get moon-sized objects. You put more data into that, though, and again, the fine-tuning reappears. And so, yeah, I, I've noticed this principle, you know, that you, I, you know, you may have articulated differently, but it's like as our understanding grows, we may see, oh, there's a bigger parameter space to make things in the class of what we're talking about. But when you look at the Earth system and the way it is here, when you put the more data in, it again restricts it. So we had simulations that couldn't even begin to touch some of the data we had, our simulations seem to open up a range to solve this problem, but when we brought in more data to explain, again, we keep getting pushed back to well, these highly fine-tuned scenarios. one good example scenarios. of that is we now know that having a 24-hour day is good for human global civilization. Things would be a lot worse if it was 23 or 25. 24 is optimal. Right. But to make that work at the time when the sun is stable enough to permit our global mm -hmm. civilization, we need the Earth to start off with a rotation rate of two hours per day. So that now has to be put into these moon exactly, forming models. Right, yeah. You gotta find a model that's gonna allow the Earth to start off with a two hour rotation rate. And so that's another factor you gotta build in there, which of course is gonna lead to more fine tuning. Well, I was doing a previous episode of Star Cells and God, and we were kind of talking about fine tuning. And I, you know, I, I commented, I think there are kind of, there seem to be two classes, kind of minimalist and maximalist in terms of what the amount of fine tuning that's there. And I, you know, I think you would fall in, in my categorization, you would fall into the maximalist, uh, that there's this incredibly high degree of fine tuning. I tend to be more in a minimalist, not so much because I don't think it might be there. It's like, I don't know what the data pushes yet. And so I'll, I'm a little bit more reserved and moving towards it. But, but I have to say- where we would agree, Jeff, is that um, there's predictive power in the fine tuning argument. In other words, we're seeing all this fine tuning that we know is there in the moon. We can use the fine tuning we see and say, well, this is really designed for human civilization. What else should we expect to discover about the moon? What else should we discover about these moon formation models and see if that pans out? And a number mm -hmm. of uh, people working on the moon have basically been making that point, is that we can use the anthropic principle or the fine tuning argument as a way to uh, guide future research, and it seems to work. All right, very good. Yeah, so I, I just think there's a lot of fine-tuning out there, and it seems like the more we learn, the more we see it. So I find that pretty fascinating. And that fits uh, Christian theism beautifully, doesn't it? Exactly, it <laughs> does very well. Well, thanks, you appreciate the discussion today. You know, thank you for joining us on Star Cells and God, and I invite you to join the discussion in the comments below. Remember to like the video and to subscribe for more content. Post new episodes Thursday of Star Cells and God. They're available here on YouTube and on your favorite.
favorite podcast app and be sure to share this video with a friend and remember that the more we learn about science, the more we have reasons to believe. 